Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. This week, we are joined by Rima Hanna, the director of CID's Evidence for Policy Design Program, best known as EPOD at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm sitting down with Rima after her virtual appearance for an HKS faculty webinar on June 9th, 2021, where she moderated a panel on making data-driven policy decisions in uncertain times. Rima, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Can you walk the listeners briefly through what you and the other panelists discussed today in the presentation? Any major highlights? You know, I, it was, oh, it's hard to condense into one or two sentences just because it was such a lively debate. Um, so just to, to give you a little background in advance, we asked um, potential participants um, who are, would be listening into to the, to the panel, what are the kind of questions they had? And we got over 60 questions. And so they covered topics such as um, when is data appropriate to use? What uh, some of the issues around the ethics of data and you know cultural beliefs about data and policymaking? There we talked a lot about inclusive growth. Um, we talked a lot about how leaders can really think about and build trust and evidence. Um, and so it was such a wide range of topics. And I think one thing that really came out of it across all the panelists, and um, it echoes a lot of my belief in data, uh, in data and evidence as well, is that one, evidence can be extremely powerful. Um, two, uh, the world generates a lot of data, and, and oftentimes that's not used in ways that can be helpful um, in terms of thinking through policy. And that Three, that you know, data is often, people think about evidence as a certainty, there's a number and it's gonna tell you the right decision. And in some cases that's gonna be true. The evidence is gonna tell you exactly, we're gonna point you in this direction versus that. But oftentimes there are cases where it's very ambiguous. It depends on what are your goals? Um, what are the types of needs of your citizens? It might be that um, it's not one fits all. And where the data can be helpful is helping you navigate the trade-offs between different policies and programs or thinking about how you target different policies and programs um, to different groups, uh, different populations. And so that uncertainty um, around data really speaks to the fact that you know, if you really want to be part of the policy debate these days, getting more comfortable and thinking about how do you interpret data, how do you understand the techniques that are being used to analyze data, how to ask the right questions to make sure that you are getting the information you need to make policy decisions is even more important in today's world. And that segues really nicely kind of into my next question. Um, I was hoping that you could speak a little bit more about um, how COVID has affected the way that we should think about economic policy and development and data more broadly. Oh, this is, again, you're asking really hard, very big questions. Um, it's going to have my morning coffee. Um, you, know, you know, I think it, you know, this is, I, you know, I think this is the key question. I think, you know, as countries were shutting down during COVID, thinking about what kind of data and evidence and real time we can get, especially as conditions are changing. And especially when it was much harder to travel and much harder, uh, you know, a policymaker, it was much harder for a policymaker to travel across states or provinces or to do face-to-face -face surveys to get information about what's happening to citizens in far reaching rural areas because of all of these restrictions. And it, it led to um, thinking about how we could be more creative, I think, in terms of collecting the data. Um, I think the other thing for me that it taught us is that a lot of our data systems are often um, very static. They're about a snapshot in time um, when we put a lot of effort into getting information in that snapshot in time, but often you know, things in the economy you know, are, are constantly changing. Um, and how do we think about having more flexible and adaptive systems 
um, that help us understand how things are changing in real time. And I think there are a lot of countries very creatively pivoted to administrative data. Um, and that requires a whole new set of tools um, to really analyze and understand, especially with these big, the big data sets. And so I think there, um, how we start to think about evidence um, moving forward and, and thinking about these administrative data sets use that became, you know, for example, cell phone records or, you know, banking records that became much more common during COVID as we, you know, think about the future, we think about the recovery, um, thinking more about how we're going to use this data in the future, I think is going to be very important. Great, thank you. You kind of covered actually what my, my next question, which is great. <laughs> I hope to kind of, yeah, we're, we're asking big questions and I hope to be able to get a bit more, more granular. So it's helpful to kind of think through, you know, those specific examples like cell phone records and banking records and things that have been used kind of differently in COVID. Um, are there other new ways of data collection that you saw kind of coming out of COVID and, and more creative uses of data? You know, I think there is a number of ways. First, I think there was a pivot because, um, you know, oftentimes traditionally countries do surveys and we do door to door surveys and you go and um, you interview a household for two hours um, and you try to learn about their well being, you try to learn about their needs. Um, and, you know, that was very challenging during COVID, first, because, you know, it was very, it was challenging to go door to door. We were very worried about community transmission. And second is because it takes planning. It takes planning to train and move an entire survey team across different parts of the country. And, uh, and policymakers are really hungry for information in real time. And I, I think there was also a pivot towards online surveys and phone surveys. Um, and there, there is a lot of challenges involved in that. For example, they need to be shorter because the attention span on an electronic device on a phone is, is very different than you know you and I having a conversation about things. And so, you know, trying to think about the right questions to ask about how to simplify the questions. You know, if the numerator, uh, if the surveyor can't help elaborate on them, but rather you're filling out an online survey on your own. Um, had a simplified, but in a way that still gets the, the correct meaning. And I, I think there were a lot of innovations there. And I, I think that will help us service in the future in terms of thinking about how to get more descriptive data. But I also, I think how you use data for policy was also changing. So for example, I work on social protection. And one of the um, important important um, descriptive facts about COVID was that um, that you know, many of the people, the types of people that we traditionally think of as vulnerable, that definition changed. Um, you know, COVID affected certain types of industries more than others. There was a worry, you know, when we think about social protection and, and low-income countries when there are budget constraints, much of it is uh, it's towards poverty relief towards you know the, the bottom of the pyramid but what was actually happening was that many middle class households in urban areas were really being severely hit and it required um to try to figure out who those households were um and how to to be able to then help them it required collecting data in different ways and you know different types of you know, as I said, the different types of surveying, but also the different use of administrative data in, uh, in terms of thinking about how do you get the right outreach to those households. Yeah, and along those same lines, kind of speaking to inclusivity, you asked the panelists during uh, the webinar about inclusive growth um, and how that we can respond after the COVID crisis. Um, how does data encourage inclusion or how can it? You know, for me, I think it's very important because I think oftentimes, you know, if done right, data can give a voice to people who might not necessarily have a voice because you can capture them in the data and make sure that you're in including their needs as well. Um, you know, I and 
I, I think there it's where data can be very powerful in terms of making sure we really understand not just you know, our beliefs about you know, what people need in order to do well in the job market, but really trying to capture information. If you're a lower, lower skilled worker and you're, you're trying to improve your skills um, in different ways because you're trying to uh, get access to better jobs, what are the kind of things you need? Um, and what are the kind of areas that we can help you with? And I, I think there data can be very powerful, but again, I, I think it's, you know, again, it's not just about data, but it's really about thinking through what is the right data we need um, and how do we think about collecting it in a way that is um, both informative and respectful um, and that there can be a lot of trust around. Um, and, and we, and this is why the panel was so interesting because nobody shied away from these questions. We spoke a lot about, about trust in data because I think that's an important piece if we wanna use it to try to think about promoting more inclusive policy. Great, thank you for that. That's really interesting. And you, you had also mentioned uh, in the panel that data doesn't exist in a vacuum uh, and that there's thought that needs to make sure that the data is speaking to the needs of the people, just as you're mentioning now. Um, can you share how this might be able to play out in a real world example? So how do you go about figuring the right questions? How do you know what to ask? You know, this again is a good question, and I think it's really starting with the problem. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, I, I you know, I, I have this all the time that students come to me and they're like, oh, I, I really want to, um, you know, I, I really want to provide a cell phone system that gives farmers information about prices in an urban market so that they could get, you know, they could uh, um, get a higher price for their goods. Um, and, and I tell them to take a step back. Like, is that the issue? Is that the problem at hand? Maybe the issue is that they know the prices are higher, but transportation costs are very high and the roads have been washed out. And so it's actually, maybe it's a higher price, but given the cost structure of going there, they're gonna get a lower overall revenue. And so I think it's often about taking a step back and trying to understand the situation, understanding what is the problem that you're trying to solve. And it's not necessarily what price farmers are getting, but um, what are the, you know, um, why are you know, farmers there, if you're thinking about well-being and you're thinking about, you know, rev their, their revenue stream, what are the different challenges they face in terms of improving revenues? Is it really about just that one price in the market or is it really you get bigger gains from even thinking about switching from one type of crop to another and what are the tools you need to do that? And so it's really taking a step back and holistically thinking about the problem. Um, and then using that to try to say, well, if I want to understand these kind of questions, what is the kind of information and data I need to assess the situation and assess which problems are, are bigger constraints um, in terms of trying to solve that problem. Um, and then also thinking about data and evidence in terms of do we know different types of solutions, are they working or not working? And so in the end, it isn't just about saying there's data and the data you know, is just speaking to me uh, you know, randomly. And you know, maybe, although that sometimes does happen, but it's really about trying to say, well, starting from the policy problem at hand, starting from the challenge we see, starting from what people's needs are and the problems they're facing, how can we use the data to assess what's going on? And then to say whether or not we can design policy better to address those challenges. Great, that's really helpful. Um, and kind of along those same lines um, that, you know, once you have the data, it, you were also mentioning that it isn't clear exactly what the decision might be and that we could use data to have debate. Um, and then also, what, what does this look like in practice and how, how can this um, play out in, in the policy sphere, this debate with data? This is a good question. You know, it's something I've thought about a lot and particularly as a teacher. 
Um, I've thought about it a lot um, because for me, when I think about the kind of skills I want my students to have when they enter the policy space, when they enter the development space, I want them to be able to have the debate. I want them to ask hard questions about the data and not just take the data as given, not just take the analysis of, you know, uh, um, you know a data wonk like me <laughs> for a given, but really to like really ask me the hard questions and make sure they're understanding what it means. And I think that's where in today's world, if even if you're interested in more of the implementation aspects of policy, you're interested in the politics, if you want to enter these conversations and being able to use information in your own decision making, having a basic grasp and understanding of evidence of, of data and techniques, the, the, the powerful part of it, but also, you know, the biases that could come from it and, and a little bit about the analysis and tools and what are the right questions to ask about that are really important if you want to be part of that conversation. Great, and I'm sure that all the students and development practitioners will be really interested to hear that advice. And I know that you'll probably speak more to that in the course that you'll be leading in September. Um, another question I have is how, how can organizations allocate scarce resources toward implementing policy design? And why do you see this as a benefit to the usage of, of these potentially scarce resources? Oh, this is a good question. You know, oftentimes the budgets for evaluation look high, but they're very tiny relative to the amount of money that's going out the door in terms of policy implementation. And I think this is where it can, uh, evaluation is extremely powerful and useful because it can guide resources to the most productive uses of the money that you're putting out the door. So for example, one thing we talked about in the panel a bit is that, you know, the question on the, the table right now is jobs. Um, and you see this around the world that so many different you know, governments around the world have set up these kind of traditional training programs. Um, and it's only now, um, you know, after years and years and you know, millions and millions of dollars being spent, it's only, you know, now that a lot of, um, you know, it really rigorous evidence has been generated testing out these programs and finding out that they don't deliver the kind of success that we hoped. Um, but then where the evidence can be useful is not just saying, well, this doesn't work or, or this works or doesn't work, but it can help us try to shift um, how we get it to work. So for example, maybe the traditional in-classroom kind of training programs are not working so well, but we're starting to see some evidence emerging that a lot of apprentice typeship on the job learning and training seems to work better. Um, you know, people are starting to test out, you know, sort of wage subsidies as, you know, if that gets you into an internship type program, um, gets you started at a company, is it going to lead to a longer job spell? Like all of these kind of questions, all of this kind of research can help shape uh, the design of policy and help us use our limited resources more wisely. Great, and kind of along similar lines when you were talking about the job job creation and using data and evidence. So uh, during COVID, there was new discussions about jobs and future skills and automation and the digital world getting a push forward, um, as you had mentioned in the talk. So what questions does this bring up for you about the future of development? And are there opportunities that you see here? No, this is, again, this is a really, really tough question. I think I actually brought up this point during the panel that I think the idea that, you know, automation and its effects on the labor market have been a debate in developed countries for a very long time. And I think in the emerging and developing world, these debates are, are being pushed, you know, uh, further out. Um, because COVID started leading to more digitization. I, I think, you know, as we think about the types of technologies we build, how to make them um, compatible uh, with workers and how do we think about the kind of skills workers are going to need in the future given the new technologies. And it raises a whole host of questions in terms of 
not just our jobs policy, not just our social protection policy, but how do we also think about education and human capital investments? And I think these are tough questions. And I think these are the kind of questions that you know a lot of policymakers and researchers um, these are the debates we're having right now and trying to think about how we generate evidence on these topics and in real time to help shape the policy debate is, is I think what's happening, um, you know, as we move out of um, the COVID crisis and into the recovery, these are the kind of questions that I think a lot of people are focusing on and, and I really hope we'll dive more into in the course in the fall. That's wonderful and I, I look forward to hearing kind of more uh, about the, the understanding and nuances that come with that uh, evidence later. As you mentioned, you'll be leading this course on smart policy design with the Harvard Kennedy School's Executive Education Program in late September. Um, how has your own work influenced the development of this course um, with Harvard? No, I, you know, this course um, uh, means a lot to me. Uh, we've run a version of it once before um, in the spring, um, uh, but. It, I think it really came from the idea that we were, I, when I talk to policymakers, uh, you know, we talk about lots of different topics. We talk about um, macroeconomics and trade. We talk, uh, talk about um, social protection. We talk about labor policy. And I think typically a lot of times when you do these kind of courses, you're really focused around one topic area. So maybe there'll be a course on public financial management or there'll be a course on you know, active labor market policy. But these things are often very connected. So for example, you know, as you're thinking about your social protection policy, it can't be divorced from either your, you know, your macro policy um, and how it affects you know, broader you know, aggregate demand in the economy, but also your tax policy in terms of raising revenues um, to be able to, to redistribute. And uh, these things are interconnected. And I think what we were trying to do is bring together experts along a wide range of these topics to hit sort of the bigger picture areas um, and to talk about these different economic areas, talk about the theory um, and how it uh, meets the challenges we're seeing these days and how they also think evidence and data can bring to bear some of the answers for these challenges. And so I'm really excited for the course. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. And I know a lot of the courses kind of group work activity and where's the benefit there for kind of working in the policy design and in, in these group work activities? Oh, this is, I think, an important um, innovation in terms of what EPOD does and the way we're teaching. And so when I, when I, um, you know, when I, I normally teach, uh, you know, it's 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 not just about lectures, um, but it's about engagement and this like active engagement in the material. And I think this is extremely important. And I, I wanted to bring this to the executive ed. Um, classes as well. Um, and in fact, this is something that the Kennedy School has really been innovating in in this area and in, in the last couple of years, because I, I think it's really important because it's not just about learning about a, a few of the topics, but really trying to say, we're going to take the, the frameworks that we're using and the skills that we're using and apply it to real world problems. Um, and in some sense, it's less about the answer you get in class, but more about the experience. Um, and with the idea that as you get experience using the policy frameworks that you can use them in your own work later on. And so I, I do think this is an important, important part of the course um, because in the end it's, you know, for me, success is not just getting out there and giving a few lectures and everybody hearing me talk for a while, but really trying to make sure that everybody can really engage in the material and contribute to the debates and understand how the kind of tools and, and policy frameworks can really be used for their own work. Because in the end, what we care about is improving policy more generally. Excellent. Thank you very much. And for my last question, uh, this is for listeners who may be very particularly interested in what you presented today. Uh, do you have any advice for aspiring development professionals? 
Oh, you know, again, this is a, a hard topic. <laughs> um, it's a, you're asking me all the hard questions. I think, you know, it's, again, we all, um, you know, maybe we all have our own, um, own biases of what we think is important. I think for me, I do think the way we use evidence is changing. Um, it's becoming more sophisticated as more administrative data sets um, are, are being used and big data is being used. And that brings in a host of different techniques and a host of different ways of thinking about evidence and data. And I, and I always tell my students that if you really wanna contribute to the policy debates these days and really be able to try to use information in terms of making sure that we're trying to do the best we can in terms of policy implementation, really having a basic grasp of what are the hard questions to be asking um, as you get confronted with um, new information, new data, new techniques. I think it's just so important. Well, thank you very much, Rima, for being here with us today and taking the time to speak with me. Um, and you can find more information about Rima's work with the Harvard Kennedy School CID and EPOD at epods, epod.cid.harvard.edu. You can also learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all back soon.